Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. My name is Raymond Dabrowski, and today I interviewed Matthew Avery Sutton about his new book, American Apocalypse, A History of Modern Evangelicalism. Matt Avery Sutton is the author of two previous books, but this book will become, I think, the standard in the historical field about American evangelicalism. Matt uh, covers a great swath of, of time from the late 19th century to the present using a really interesting model for uh, studying a particular idea of apocalyptic thought throughout American evangelicalism. And I think he what he does is he rewrites the way that we should look at the group of people and the, and the ideas, the central ideas of those people in the, the way we define fundamentalism and fundamentalists. And uh, he has a wonderful few chapters about the interwar period and World War II. It's a great interview. Uh, Matt Avery Sutton has, has done a wonderful job with his book, and I look forward to seeing how the historical profession receives it. Matthew Sutton, thank you for coming to speak to New Books and in Intellectual History. It is a pleasure to talk to you about your new book, American Apocalypse, A History of Modern Evangelism. So, Matt, before we get into the book itself, would you mind talking a bit about your own background, uh, where you grew up, your educational background, and what led you to write this particular book? Sure, Ray, and thanks for um, interviewing me for this. I actually grew up in Southern California and was very much involved in, or at least close to, the American evangelical subculture of Southern California, um, in that my parents were very active in church, okay. and they put me in private schools for most of my life. And okay. it was through that that I became interested in the, the topic that became the center of this book, Apocalypticism. And I remember distinctly going to a weekend seminar with some of my um, fellow basketball players on my junior high basketball team. <laughs> And one of the one of the kids' fathers was a lay preacher, and he organized this weekend seminar for us on the end times. Really? And I remember leaving. Yeah, I remember leaving that seminar convinced that the Antichrist was alive, was well, was probably somewhere already placed within the United Nations, and that Jesus wow. was going to come back very, very soon. So, how old were you when this happened? So I was about fourteen, and so that left a distinct impression okay. um, on me. Very much made me aware of of how much the conviction that the Antichrist was out there somewhere could have an impact on people's lives. Okay, now, some people may think that Southern California is the bastion of secularism and Hollywood and American materialism, but that's that's not actually the case, is it? No, and that's another dimension to this book, I think, is I've tried to show how fundamentalism in the 1920s, 30s, and 40s, and then evangelicalism since, was very much an urban and western movement, um, which is not to say it also okay. has not been very important in the South, and of right. course after World War II it becomes increasingly important in the South, but Los Angeles was, was a bastion of fundamentalism at the same time that Hollywood was coming into its own. These two things worked together. That's interesting. Now, Matt, where did you go to school? Uh, where did I go to school? For, uh, a small Christian school called Village Christian. Okay. So it was in the San Fernando Valley, founded in the early 1950s, and our mascot was the Crusaders, and that is still the mascot to this wow. day, which probably needs some rethinking. <laughs> Do people talk about it at all on campus? Do they have discussions about, I don't know, the role that the place plays in American culture? Um, not that I recall, not that I remember. Yeah. I mean, it was something that was that was uh, it was out there. It was something people believed, but it wasn't. Uh, I don't remember it being something that was part of the school itself. Okay. And where'd you go to graduate school? Graduate school into the University of California, Santa Barbara. Yeah, so another bastion of secularism. I was going to say very yeah. different than where he went to college. Yeah. 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 So, um, well, where I went to college was another evangelical. Sorry, I was talking about my. Oh, okay. Where I had that apocalyptic experience. Was, okay. Was Village Christian. I went to college um, at a small evangelical liberal arts school in Colorado, but um, but graduate school was UC Santa Barbara. It was my first um, experience in a public university, and was really great. It was um, I, I just got a great education and yeah. was able to, to cross train in both history and in religious studies. So, was there something about Santa Barbara that drew you there? The people that were working there. 
uh, you know, in part, Kathy Albanese was there um, and Jane DeHart. Yeah. Uh, those were my two dissertation mentors. On the other hand, I really didn't know much about the way graduate school worked or how to get into graduate school, and I got in there, so I went. <laughs> like, I think, a bunch of us. <laughs> the good experience. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I know a lot more now than I did then. Yeah. So what is it that, what turned you into the historian that you are when you were at Santa Barbara? I mean, was there something that uh, sort of pushed you down? I mean, you, you study somewhat your background, your religious background, but was there anything else that pushed you to write the way that you do, or particularly to pick the topics that you do? Not that I can pinpoint to the school. I mean, there are certain things. I, uh, this book, I actually remember pitching when I first started applying to graduate school, although yeah. it was very different at that time, and was told it was too ambitious, it was too big, it wasn't It wasn't a good project for a dissertation. So then I ended up shifting onto Amy Simple McPherson and doing a microhistory. And yeah. that was a really fun project. But at the same time, I, I had no idea that I would come back and, and end up doing this bigger history of fundamentalism you know, a few years later. I mean, do you feel like, because you have, the first book was on, when it was on Amy, the second Second book that you wrote. There was a second book in between uh, this latest one and the first one. Which which was that? Right, that was um, Jerry Falwell on the making of the religious right. It's yeah. a small textbook which is geared toward classroom use, and so it's a, a short introduction by me, and then a lot of great primary sources. Okay, and, and so basically, you feel like this is sort of the the natural step for you to come back to this larger project. I mean, arguably a very ambitious part project. I think so. I think, you know, that was one thing my mentor, Gene DeHart, grilled into me in graduate school. Yeah. Was, you know, each project should be bigger, more ambitious, more comprehensive, more significant. And so I, I, you know, the readers will determine whether or not that's the case. But I've always tried to do that with this book. Well, I mean, so let's let's start let's start talking about uh, this this latest book, because in many ways, uh, it's very clear that this is going to be in some ways, the new standard in the field on evangelical history in the United States. And so I wanted to talk a bit about uh, how you positioned the book in in the field of history. But uh, to begin with, what do you see as, as what, what makes up a book that becomes a sort of standard in the field? How would you describe uh, something like that? Not particularly your book, but more generally, what would what sort of goes into a book being a standard in any field of history? Sure. Well, you're very kind to, to define mine that way. I, well, I think it's a little, little too early for me to say that, but uh, <laughs> we'll I don't think I'll ever be able to say that. <laughs> but yeah, for me, I'm the, I'll tell you what my goal was in the book, yeah. is, which I think is what I think of is if, if you're aspiring to write a standard, and that is um, to do more archival research than anybody's done before you. Yeah. And so I tried yeah. to do that. I tried to have more primary sources in there. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's a big part of it is, is just the nuts and bolts. That it's, you know, there's very little in there that's based on secondary literature. It's almost... You know, which again is not to say ideas didn't come from the secondary literature and sure. we can talk about that, but certainly sure. the, I don't I don't just take other people's um, claims at face value. I wanted yeah. to see the sources in the archives themselves. The, the other issue is I think just making a, a big comprehensive arguments and right. uh, something that really changes the way we think about a particular topic. And then the other thing which was important for me, but this does not necessarily have to be the case for every book, was I think it also should be, at least for me, it needs to be relevant to the contemporary situation. And, right. you know, I wasn't writing it necessarily to deal with today's issues, but I do think it still matters to, to issues that are of concern or questions we have about today's culture. And of course, it's easier doing that about with 20th century U.S. history than doing something more obscure. But, um, but nevertheless, those are those are kind of the ideas I had going into this. Yeah, I mean, I was fascinated. I mean, part of what uh, I've, I've heard or read uh, other interviews with you about this, that uh, part of what sort of got you interested in, in positioning the book the way you have is trying to figure out why evangelicals were so dead set against the uh, Affordable Care Act. Can you talk just a little bit about that? Sure, yeah. There were, there were two things sort of happening simultaneously, which is, uh, one was, I've, and this is where the Jerry Fowler book comes in, yeah. I'm fascinated by the rise of the religious right and the relationship between evangelicals and politics. And okay. I've, um, I've long understood why evangelicals are critical of the Democratic Party on abortion, on gay rights, on a number of other cultural issues. But what I couldn't understand is why they would be inherently opposed to the government getting involved in social welfare, especially in something like health care. Okay. And I realized that not only was that happening during the debates with Obama, it was happening during the debates with the Clintons, and it was also happening in the 1940s when right. Harry Truman proposed national health care. And so for me, the question, one of the questions driving this book was to understand what is the relationship between evangelicals and the state? Why is it that they don't trust the state? Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and so if, if you had to, I mean, because you have uh, if a great article in the JAH about the, the New Deal and evangelicals. And uh, wh- I mean, what is it? Is there something, is there sort of a core to evangelicalism that uh, is anti-statist? I think so. And that, that then gets at the key argument in the book, which is that beginning in the late 19th century, a particular group of evangelicals became obsessed with the imminent second coming of Christ. They looked, yeah. at, they looked at world conditions around them, they looked at what was happening, and they determined that they were living in what the book of Revelation describes as the last days before the second coming. And so what they believed is as they moved towards the last days, ultimately governments would succumb to the rule of Antichrist, this mythical, biblical leader who's going to take charge after all true Christians are raptured off the earth. And so if if you believe that we're heading towards the rise of the Antichrist, and you believe that the Antichrist is going to work through political institutions, through governments, then you are by nature going to be inherently suspicious of any government programs that right. seem to be undermining your rights or your liberties or your autonomy. And so, for me, that seemed to make the most sense. And I was able to trace, you know, from really the the progressives from the late 19th, early 20th century, all the way to the present, this core group of fundamentalists and evangelicals who were opposed to any effort by the government to infringe on what they perceived as their rights. Now, that doesn't mean that they didn't support the government's work regulating abortion or regulating divorce right. or regulating pornography right. or regulating alcohol. I mean, for them, they were able to pick and choose what issues were important. But nevertheless, that to me, that the anti-statism grew out of their fear of coming totalitarian, totalitarian governments. So has this argument been sort of pushed to the forefront in other major works on American evangelicalism, or is, is this really the first time that a historian has moved that particular position among evangelicals and made it the central argument of a book on them? Um, yes and no, it's been, it's been used before. So the, the first real definitive history of fundamentalism, Ernest Sandin's book, which came out in 1970, made the mm-hmm. argument that evangelicals' millennialism or fundamentalist millennialism is what gave life and shape and fervor to the movement. Right. Um, then George Marsden came along 10 years later and said, not really. He wanted to expand huh. the base of fundamentalism and give it a broader definition and, and believe that there were other things that were more important. And Marsden has pretty much carried the day. Absolutely. Since, and, right. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm sort of trying to resurrect Sandine's argument and, and put it in a different context and ask different questions. But, but I see myself as sort of continuing Sandine's argument in, in challenging Marsden in a new way. So, I mean, not that Marsden gets stuff made, you know, wrong necessarily, but why, why did he place emphasis on certain uh, core convictions or, or certain positions that you find problematic and that you, that you saw as, as something to correct, perhaps, or, or to massage a bit in this book? Sure, even I would even say just to, to build on or to expand, and that, yeah. that is that there were two issues. Um, one, Marsden focused on a lot of different groups who were um, – anti-theological modernist, as okay. opposed to theological modernism. And so so in doing that, he blended a lot of different groups and called them all fundamentalists, even okay. if they didn't define themselves right. as fundamentalists. Right. I focus on a much smaller network of people who actually identify as fundamentalists in the 10s, 20s, and 30s. And then within that, um, the, what I focus on is all these people had relationships with one another through Bible institutes, through magazines, and through various important pastorates, through Bible conferences and prophecy conferences. And so so the group I'm focusing on is smaller than Marsden's, but it's the group that I think very directly is are the movers and shakers in American evangelicalism. I mean, you can draw the straight line from Dwight Moody to Billy Sunday to Amy Simple McPherson to Charles Fuller to Harold Ockengate to Billy Graham to Jerry Falwell to Rick Warren. I mean, it's... it's yeah. There are a whole lot of other folks who Marsden right. also thinks are important and they are important, but they're just not part of that network or that movement. I mean, this this is where I think, especially intellectual historians, are going to have um, they're going to get a great deal out of your book because I think you've created yet another way of of trying to show lineage in ideas over time. And I'm I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the challenge that that posed to you because you know, clearly Marsden's book is so important, it's been the standard in the field, that for most of us, um, we saw fundamentalism or evangelicalism as, as quite uh, diffuse. But you're saying, uh, you know, sort of hold on, it's, it's not exactly the case. Um, and like, you know, maybe pragmatists or um, uh, liberals, 
we have to we have to look at different subsets and try to locate particular core groups that informed sort of the backbone or the spine of a particular intellectual movement. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's exactly correct, and that's and that's where I don't think uh, why I don't think Marston and I necessarily are butting heads. Right. Um, we're we're just focusing on different groups of people for different purposes. Yeah. Um, and so I think, and, and there's been a lot of work recently that have you know tried to chip away at Marsden. There's been work by Donald Dayton, by mm-hmm. D.G. Hart, who have called for a redefinition of fundamentalism and a, a, re, a rethinking of the categorization. And so I'm not sure that either of those two would like my work. Um, I hope they would. But but there have been there has long been a need for us to give a tighter, more clear um, definition of what is a fundamentalist, and so that's part of what I was trying to do. I mean, does that change then our way that we view their significance, the fundamentalists' significance in, in American history? It doesn't really, it, it doesn't it doesn't diminish it at all. Um, okay. Because again, like I said, then I'm making the argument that the folks that I focus on are the ones who have been had the greatest impact on American culture. They're the people who have mastered mass media. Yeah. They're the people who have engaged with politics. They're the ones who have become extremely yeah. involved in the culture wars. Um, would, so there are these other folks that also need to be counted. There are the creedal conservatives. There are the pietists. Yeah. But they're not the folks who have become the face of American evangelicalism. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and, that's and, interesting. Go ahead. I was going to say, one of the things that I, I, I would like to sort of get to immediately, because I think it's the thing that, that hangs out there, and, and you do a nice job, I think, in the book, is that we, when we think about American fundamentalism in the 20th century, we often focus on the Scopes trial and this, this sort of wave or undulation of, of fundamentalist significance that uh, it peaks around that time, it goes into hiding, comes back out sometime in the 70s. But that is, your periodization of the book is, is very different. I mean, you really, I think there are, what, maybe five, six pages on the Scopes trial, uh, and that's it in your book. So can you yeah, uh, talk a bit, a, bit about, a bit about that? Yeah, that's one of the key arguments to the book is that this periodization of fundamentalists rising until 1925 and then falling or withdrawing until at least Billy Graham yeah. and coming, yeah. coming again has, has been incorrect. And again, others have chipped away at that thesis um, in a variety of different places and formats, but nevertheless, nobody has ever kind of directly taken on that thesis, which has become absolutely ingrained in just about every religious history textbook and even most non-religious history books still assume that when they talk about religion. But the, the script's trial for me was um, kind of a red herring that William James yeah. Bryan wasn't really a fundamentalist. Right. And he didn't care that much about individuals' personal <laughs> salvation. Right. He believed we could perfect the world. He believed we could perfect humankind. He was very much an optimist. Um, on the social issues, he didn't align with fundamentalists. And so what happens in the Scopes trial, though, is Clarence Darrow and H.L. Mencken, two people right. whose voices were extremely powerful, they start labeling yeah. everybody who disagrees with evolution a fundamentalist yeah. and that takes that sticks. Yeah. And because of the media attention to the anti-evolution trial, before long, uh, most of the American public was associating fundamentalism with the anti-evolution campaign, even though it was really a secondary issue for the fundamentalists themselves. But, but the the renaming or the redefinition of fundamentalism had become so effective that by the 1940s, fundamentalists then decided they need to reclaim the evangelical name because they realized the term fundamentalist has just been destroyed because of the Scopes trial. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, it's fascinating in many ways. And of course, you're asking uh, readers to imagine that um, the publicity that fundamentalists have gotten uh, in, in one sense, there's one lineage there about how the term has been defined by people outside of evangelical Christianity is is wrong, or at least distorted in a, in a quite a fundamental way. Is that is that right? Yeah. Yes and no. I mean, I, I don't think nobody has the you know has a monopoly on how they want to define their own terms. They're always going to be yeah, okay. distorted or changed by outsiders. Um, I think the more interesting thing is the the choices that fundamentalists made. Well, first, I'm not, and I call them in the book radically evangelical. Right. Until they adopt the term fundamentalist. Right. And then, and then the choice to abandon that term in the 1940s and what that meant. Um, so that gets back to the larger issue too of the definition of who's a fundamentalist and who's not. Yeah. And there was always this wrestling over among this network of people that I'm tracing about what to call themselves and okay. what it meant. Um, but but the consequence of them engaging so directly with the public yeah. was that, in fact, they were going to be defined by outsiders as well as by right. themselves. They could not yeah. control their own image or their own identity, just just as no other group who play, participates in a public marketplace right. can do that. No, that's a, that's a great point. 
So maybe you could talk a bit about uh, about the terms that you use, because I think this is one of the keys to the book. One of the the, the great uh, parts of the book is that you're you try to be very precise about how you describe uh, the groups that you're talking about. And one of the things that you that you use is a sort of radical evangelicalism. Um, can you talk a little bit about why uh, that term is important to your description of the group? Sure. Well, I start with the classic definition of evangelicalism from the 18th and 19th century that really starts in the Great Awakening of, you know, an evangelical is someone who emphasizes the centrality of Jesus Christ, especially his death and resurrection, Mm -hmm. the importance of the Bible, and the importance of missions of, you know, trying to convert others to the faith. Um, And that's the fourth one. Christ, Bible, salvation, I guess the individual conversion experience. Um, And so... You know, I don't. I don't particularly spend much time debating that definition. I just sort of granted. Yep. But then I look at these folks in the late 19th century who, within that tradition, then begin to modify and adapt and evolve and begin to put new emphasis on this apocalypticism. And so, for me, the term, the best term to use to describe them, because they were not just evangelicals, but was radically evangelicals. And it's the term that Grant Wacker has used in his past work to describe these folks in the late 19th century. Yeah. Um, so that's the one I stick with until the end of World War One, when we begin to see an identifiable fundamentalist movement okay. among people who begin to call them Souls fundamentalist, right. which of course comes from the publication of the books, The Fundamentals, a testimony right. to Christian truth, and then also um, famous account of a Baptist editor um, in 19, I believe it was 1921, might have been 1920, saying a fundamentalist is somebody who wants to do battle royal for the faith. Yeah. Um, so I, I stick with that term until the 1940s when the National Association of Evangelicals was formed. And again, at that point, it was actually going to be called something with fundamentalists in the title, and then they begin to realize that it's time for a new image to, to kind of remake themselves to become more, what they, what they perceived as more respectable, more mainstream, less confrontational, less polemical. And so they adopt the name evangelical, essentially returning to the classic historic term to give yeah. themselves credibility. Yeah. So if the, it, this may sound somewhat naive, but is there a, a huge difference among evangelicals between fundamentalists and those who are still evangelicals but may not feel that they have um, the same ideas at stake as as the core group of fundamentalists do? Is there, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about the left wing of, of evangelicals, Jim Wallace and, and perhaps um, people like him. I mean, could they call themselves fundamentalists and, and still fit into the category that you're talking about? Not really, but part of that is, is not the politics, but it's the the chronology. Yeah. So once we get to the 1940s, then we develop this group that starts identifying as evangelicals and not fundamentalists. Now, there's still a hardcore that claims the name fundamentalist after the 1940s, but again, I'm not that interested in their trajectory because they're, they have diminishing influence. Okay. I'm interested in the folks who remake themselves as evangelicals. Now, within that group, and this is where Molly Wortham's excellent work comes right. in, there is growing diversity. So I think in 1945, even 1955, it's still a pretty tight, mostly apocalyptic-based evangelical yeah. group. But over the 1960s, 70s, 80s, and 90s, it really explodes, diversifies. And okay. so now there are a lot of different people who claim the name evangelical who would not put the emphasis on apocalypticism that their fundamentalist fathers and mothers did or grandfathers and grandmothers did. Okay, so let's talk about apocalyptism. Uh, this is this is the, I mean, the, the, um, the central sort of idea that's captured in the title, and it certainly... Um, provides uh, some some sort of fascinating um, order, structure to some of the stories that you provide in the book. So can you talk about apocalyptic thinking in evangelical thought and why that becomes so central to your story? Sure, yeah, and that's the, the key um, theme of the book, is that there had always been apocalyptic movements throughout yeah. church history. They've right. kind of come and gone, waxed and waned. Um, and we see another one happening in the late 19th century. It's inspired in the U.S. partly by the death and the destruction of the Civil War, partly by all these other national and international changes. Um, and it had actually, in part, developed in response to the French Revolution in Ireland and the U.K. as well. And so there were this, these apocalyptic ideas sort of in the air floating around. And, and out of them, a couple of, or some of these radically evangelicals from the 19th century, they embrace these ideas and they see them as capable of explaining the world in which they're living in ways that are clearer, better, more substantial than yeah. any other competing theologies. Now, 
the, the idea of the theology probably would not have lasted that long. I mean, again, we've seen these movements come and go. Yeah. Except that what happens in the late 19th century is they make a series of predictions, um, and then the predictions almost all come true within the next 50 years. Hmm. And that's what's the fascinating thing for me about studying these folks. And so what they say in the late 19th century is that Jews are going to return to Palestine in the last days. They say there's going to be a great right. empire coming out of um, Russia. They say that the Roman Empire is going to be restored. They say there's going to be a great empire in the Far East, and they say there's going to be wars and rumors of wars. So they lay out all these predictions, and then suddenly, as you know, we go through World War One, the um, British claim Palestine is a homeland for the Jews. Yeah. Uh, we then see the rise of uh, first the Bolsheviks and then Stalin in the Soviet Union. We see Mussolini trying to restore the Roman Empire, and then we see these horrific wars. Fundamentalists, it could say. We, we knew this was going to happen. We got it right. Much yeah. more than any other group in American history, we have been able to tell you where you were, where you are, and where you're going to go. And so the faith really has this powerful resonance and is able to, to spread very rapidly, very effectively, because fundamentalists had an answer to the world's problems that few other people could offer at that time. Why are they able to make these predictions? What are they basing them on? And why do people believe that they have some authority to make these predictions? Well, they were... You know, they're basing them on particular interpretations of different books of the Bible, pretty yeah. obscure parts of the Bible, Ezekiel, Daniel, Revelation, and some of Jesus' sermons. Um, part of it, I think, was just dumb luck. People had always okay. made predictions, yeah, uh, right. <laughs> often gotten them wrong. Um, but but it, it, you know, the 20th century played into their hands in many ways, and World War II especially, and so it gave them a credibility that other apocalyptic groups have not had. Now that said, as soon as the war develops, almost all their predictions end up unraveling, Right. and so then they have to regroup and rethink, and that's one of the other fun things or fascinating things about the story is how the predictions have changed, but they keep making the predictions, and so you can trace you know, this emphasis on Mussolini in the Roman <laughs> right. Empire in the 1930s, right. then on Stalin in the 40s, and the Soviet Union, and then on the Middle East in the 1970s, and then especially on Saddam Hussein in the 1990s, um, and then back to Putin. We've got you know Russia yeah, exactly. revival right. again. So, uh, so the, the characters change, the geographies change, but the theology doesn't. But they they essentially they continue to reuse the theology in ways to try to make their faith relevant to contemporary issues and concerns. But one of the things that I, I really had trouble getting my head around is why people give them any kind of credence. For these predictions, I mean, uh, there are so many. I mean, if you, if you, there are so many different theories of interpreting all those events, and yet it seems like uh, the fundamentalist or, or you know the sort of evangelical that you're talking about uh, gets a great deal or is given a great deal of authority over how to interpret these world events and and how to scare people into either following them or believing that uh, they they do have some true insight into the future of world affairs. Why is that the case? Well, part of it is because, you know, they're not historians. The the yeah. average person is not going to go back and look at what they were predicting in the 1930s or the 1970s, much less the 1990s. I mean, they, they just are, yeah, I said that wrong, but you know what I mean. Um, no, yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, and so the, what it is, though, is the faith that gives them, that makes an ancient faith, ancient Christianity okay. relevant okay. to the world around them. And so yeah. if you're insecure about what's happening, if you're concerned about Ebola, if you're concerned about yeah. Putin, if you're concerned about the economy, here are some people who can come in and tell you why things are the way they are, but also tell you it's going to be okay. Right. You're going to escape right. this problem. It's going to be, you know, you're ultimately right. going to come out victorious. And so I think it's a very powerful, very effective faith in that way. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, one of the things that I found fascinating is that there, there seem to be historical moments that if they didn't happen, uh, uh, evangelicals would have tried to create them in some sense. You know, it's as things begin to wane uh, in the in the early 20th century, World War One erupts. You know, uh, you have the Scopes trial and then World War Two erupts. Um, and then after World War Two, even though things that had been predicted don't come to pass, you have the atomic bomb. Uh, and the Cold War. And it, it seems so almost perfectly uh, paced so that evangelicals sort of grab onto the next great defining world event. And it, and in many ways, it makes complete sense within their theology. I mean, did you get that? <laughs> Do you see that sense at all? 
you have that sense at all? Right, no, that's exactly that's that's exactly what they're doing, and that's what makes it so effective. Is it's it's loose enough, it's open enough, it's vague enough to be applicable to almost any situation, and especially the worse the situation is, then the better. Yeah. The more evidence there seems to be for the truth of their claims, because that's what they're going to claim is that things are getting worse and worse and worse, and so they're able to to make the most out of terrible, you know, terrible global tragedies. And one of the interesting things was at the end of World War One, Protestant liberals were very critical of fundamentalists for being so negative. Yes. At the end of World War Two, some yes. of those same yes. Protestant liberals said, well, you know, we don't like their theology, but they're right. Things are awful. Humankind yes. is inherently depraved, that, that the world is heading to hell on a handbasket. Now, let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean that's it's fat because you one of the great arguments in this book is the way that you that you explain the language of evangelicalism and how it becomes how it seeps into so many different places in American life that 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 in some ways is uh, the pervasive influence of evangelicalism if you could if you could try to measure it that's where it is it's in language it's in 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 the way that they characterize or can um, contextualize these terrible events. Yeah, exactly. And that's, it's most obvious, and there's, there's many places where you can see this, but most obvious is in Ronald Reagan. I don't yeah. think Ronald Reagan believed evangelical apocalypticism <laughs> at all. I don't think he bought their theology. But he understood the power of their language, and he used their language to frame the Cold War, to frame the Soviet Union as the evil empire, to yeah. sort of explain that we were, you know, at the gates of Armageddon. I mean, it's just, it's, his speeches are full of this kind of apocalyptic evangelical rhetoric. And he was reading their stuff. I mean, it's clear where he's getting the ideas. He's talking about it with evangelicals. He's talking about the evangelical books he's reading. And so it becomes an effective way for him to sort of create a kind of politics of good versus evil, righteousness yeah. versus unrighteousness, and also to legitimate the fact that he's not going to compromise, he's not going to moderate, yeah. Yeah. at least rhetorically, that his way is the right way, that he's on the side of God and on the side of righteousness. Yeah, I mean, one of the, uh, the, the great lines in your book, he said, amid the disjuncture of modern times, apocalypticism often made better sense than competing theologies. Indeed, even evangelical apocalypticism helped to inspire a new kind of politics without compromise and gave post-World War II Americans, from those residing in church pews to those occupying the White House, a language and an ideology through which to frame their relationship to the rest of the world. And that, that is a dynamite paragraph, Matt. Um, no, it is. And it, and it, I mean, I can imagine that uh, it seems to capture so much of what uh, we often sort of um, stumble towards when we're trying to explain why there's maybe a polarization in politics or radicalization of certain types of politics. Um, but, it, but it also provides this uh, a sort of foundation that we can then dig into, we can research into. So when, when I mean, when, obviously this, this comes in the beginning of the book, and this uh, when you often write the introduction at the end of, of your research, but when you were writing a paragraph like that, I mean, what were you what were you thinking of? What were the events or the people that you were thinking of um, that you connect through something a statement like that? You know, it's it's an interesting paragraph that you chose um, because as soon as you started reading it, the the funny thing is, it's one of those issues that happens, I think, to all writers, where. Which just gets to your point about writing the introduction at the end of the book, where you can't even see what you've done. <laughs> uh, the first, the first line of that that you read about the yeah. competing theologies. Yeah. I lifted that. Darren Dochuk wrote that line when he was peer reviewing peer reviewing a draft of the book for me. Yeah. Um, and I was, wow, that really works. Yeah. And then some of the other issues that the political um, no negotiation, no compromise. Joyce Seltzer, my wonderful editor at Harvard University Press, she sort of saw that in the book, and she thought this is what your book's doing. And so, <laughs> I mean, obviously the words in the end are mine, and they're a reflection of you know the rest of the book. Oh, absolutely. But it, it took for me some of these other people to read all this evidence that I had marshaled, read all these ideas I had put together, and to be able to sort of stand back and see what's the big picture, and and then to help me see the big picture. So, so unfortunately, that's. Probably a less sexy answer to your no, question. No, no, no. I would love to claim credit for all of that, but it, it was actually that it also gets to the nature of how we work and the ways in which yeah. other people can help you see the significance of your work. No, I mean, it's in, in one sense, you know, the book can be read as this, this really sort of an overview of, of the last 150 years of American history, you know. At the same time, it can be read as a sort of a dense, uh, episodic view of, of different sort of moments in American history that, that push us towards conclusions like the one you know i suggested from from the introduction um and, and you know something that's 
that's sort of occupied my time uh, the last few years, I was amazed at how central uh, wars have become to evangelical thought and how important it seems to me that has been to them. I mean, again, you can correct me if I'm wrong in this one, pushing aside the sort of social gospel concerns of the late 19th and early 20th centuries that wars have sort of, is that, is that the case of wars and, and the idea of America's military might and military um, promise has sort of pushed aside social concerns to a certain degree? Yes and no. And actually, let me go back to what you what you first said, and then I want to get back to that, which sure. is um, the the issue of reading this as you know 150 years of American history. Mm-hmm. That is something I was very explicit and very conscious about doing. Right. Was and something that I think some historians of religion don't right. don't spend as much time doing as they could is to really understand. And, and part of that is the benefit of you know I don't teach religious history that often. I mostly teach you know quote unquote straight American. History. Right. It's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so so I'm well versed in the nuances of you know, World War One to the present because yep. I just teach that stuff all the time. And yep. So for me, the research is on evangelicals, but the context is just what I teach, you know, on yeah. a weekly and a daily basis. But um, but that that's something that that I try to do. But on your question about the wars, I think you're you're right in the sense that wars have become an obsession for evangelicals, especially because Jesus said again in the last days there would be wars and rumors of wars, right. and so they've been looking for those as major signs of his imminent second coming. But I don't think they've necessarily neglected the social gospel. They're okay. just offering a different social gospel than the Protestant liberals of the progressive era, okay, or good, even good. the civil rights leaders. Right. Um, they're offering, you know, a social gospel that says marriage is between one man and one woman, and that, yes, right. you know, the nuclear family is, as they define it, is the ideal family. That we should have free market economics, which is going to create economic stability in the family. Um, you know, they're getting back to the anti-poor and anti-abortion, anti-gay rights initiatives. Um, they want to see a very limited government not engaged in civil rights legislation that they see as overbearing on the interests of private businesses, small businesses. So, so very much is social. It's just not, it's just not liberal. And and so that's, that's, that's also one of the stories they try to tell is how that has been true of them since the late 19th century, that it's, it's not that political activism or having a social consciousness was something that developed with Jerry Falwell in the late 1970s, but they've always had a political conscience. It's just not, it's just been one that didn't get a lot of attention in the era of the New Deal and yeah. the rise and the fall of the New Deal order, but has since gotten a lot more attention, of course. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I, I think does distinguish your book from others on evangelicals is that you've, you've attempted also to merge um, a look at different evangelical groups or fundamentalist groups, including African-Americans. So I, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about how that was a conscious decision on your part as a, as a U.S. historian to say, you know, evangelicals, you can't focus on one particular group of white men uh, in this history, that you you do have to be broader because it's it's, uh, it's a much longer, much bigger history. Sure, and that I can trace back you know, directly to discussions I had with Ed Bloom ten years ago. Yeah, and Ed Bloom kept asking me, "Why does you know what role does race play here? What yep. role does what race play here?" And, yep. and at first, I thought, "Well, I'm focusing on you know white folks, and I'll be very conscious about that." But but it was when he kept pushing me, and I began to look at how African Americans started to understand apocalyptic theology. Right. And for me, it was as if this, you know the scales came off my eyes, and I realized that by explaining their theology and the social conscience that they developed from that very same apocalyptic theology mm-hmm. that helped me understand how much these white fundamentalists and evangelicals assumed or took for granted granted or used their white privilege. Um, and so it, it was very illuminating for me as a researcher, and then I hope hopefully it will be for readers as well, to really see the juxtaposition of these groups that presume, well not presumably, that do in fact share very many of the very same right. theological foundations, right. but have very, very different social views and and I think it will too. It will also be a call to white evangelicals to recognize how much of their theology is a product or a reflection of their class and their race. And once they can see how African Americans have read the same Bible the same way and came yeah. to very different readings. Yeah, I mean, actually, could you could you give an example of of where you you saw that most clearly uh, play out? Sure, and there's a number of them, but you know, in the World War One era, yeah. where fundamentalists are denouncing what they see as all these signs of the last days, immorality. <laughs> um, they believe that the you know the Bible says when we get near the end times, it's going to be a return to the days of Noah, the days of Lot, and so they identify divorce, sexual sins, all these kinds of um, you know women's suffrage, all these kinds of gendered 
issues as songs that we're living in the last days. Yeah. African Americans at the exact same time are talking about Jim Crow. They're talking about yeah. not being able to vote. They're talking about lynching. And they're using the same Bible verses. They're saying this is what it's going to be in the end times. Yeah. But for them, they're so much more aware of racial injustices right. than these whites are. And so it, it really, you know, it's, it's a sad reflection on the white fundamentalists. And the, the African Americans are constantly saying that. They're saying, why are you ignoring us? Why are you ignoring these issues? How can yeah. you claim to represent the Christian gospel and not take seriously lynching or Jim Crowism? So. So that would be one example of just where you can yeah. see these distortions. And we see them essentially with every generation as the different issues evolve. Yeah. So if, if, uh, if what we know of, of, of white evangelicals and their views of, of apocalyptic ideas, um, apocalyptic visions, pushes them to be more political, is that the same thing that happens to the black evangelical population? Do they become more political or differently political because of, of their reading of the end times? That's a good question. Um, I don't know that I would say they became as directly differently political. Yeah, okay. I think one of the things, and one of the things that whites do in the African, and this is to get back to how African runs do it, is sometimes the apocalyptic theology drives them into very certain, very specific political positions. Other times, though, it justifies or rationalizes positions that are being inspired by other causes or other theologies yeah, okay. or other reasons. Right. So for African Americans, I think you know, I think the majority of the folks I read were were already, already concerned about civil rights issues. They didn't need apocalyptic yeah. theology to do that. That's interesting. But the apocalyptic theology gave them a language and a means of further calling out their white, supposedly fellow brothers and sisters in Christ who were ignoring um, the injustices that they were Facing. Okay, so let's talk about one of the most, I think, complex figures in the book who is, I think, quite well known to people, but who did have uh, really some, I don't know, some complicated thoughts about his interaction with the black community. And that's Billy Graham. Um, I think we, we think we know who he is and why he's important to American life and to American uh, thought about um, Protestantism. But I was really surprised in your book what you... Uh, focused in on with with Graham that his apocalyptic thinking was not just part of him but absolutely central to what made him tick and what made him important. Can you talk a bit about that? Yeah, I think it was central. And, and so the first nine chapters of the book are pretty dense, pretty detailed. You know, slow moving through slow moving in terms of the amount of chronology they cover. And then the last two chapters try to trace the themes to the present. And yeah. Graham, of course, is the center of that last chapter. And so I, I couldn't treat him with the kind of, well, I couldn't treat evangelicals in the, you know, last 30 years with the kind of detail that I do in the earlier parts of the book. But so for me, Graham became a symbol, a representative of where these fundamentalist ideas from the interwar period had gone in the post-war period. And, and what struck me from Graham is how often he was preaching the second coming of Christ and mm -hmm. how seriously he believed it. And I think the thing that really you know, reiterated that for me was when he published in 2010 a uh, uh, revision of his book Storm Warning, in which he really claims he begins the book by saying at 91 years old, of age. I'm more convinced now than ever that Jesus is going to return at any moment. Mm -hmm. and there's just this sense of urgency that we see from him just within the last couple of years that matches his urgency in 1949 when he was first preaching right after the Soviets detonated an atomic bomb. And so for Graham, essentially every decade he's put out a new book that lays out the signs that we're living in the end times and encourages people to be active, to be engaged, because we don't have much time because Jesus is coming back and he's going to judge. And so we have to do as much as we can um, to be effective for, for God. And so it's it's one of those things that I think has not gotten a lot of attention in Cran's work. And some scholars will disagree. I mean, I've gone around right. and around with Cran Wacker on this. And, um, you know, and I think I've convinced him a little bit, and he's convinced me that maybe I'm, you know, a little bit as well. But there will be those of us who just ultimately debate and disagree on how important apocalyptic thinking has been. But, but for me, I think I think if we take our subjects seriously, right. they say it's important. Right. Their, their own words tell us how important it was. So for me in this book, my job was to try to explain why it was important and what its effect was, how that shaped the movement and shaped the way individuals in the movement acted. Well, the reason why it seemed to make sense to me and why you know it was obvious why you, you sort of ended the book in some ways with, with, these, uh, with a profile of Graham to a certain extent was that you had spent so much time in the first uh, majority of the book 
laying the groundwork for why this particular type of thinking produced particular people that we that we know of today. And I, I that's um, that I, I thought was one of the, the better arguments for where Graham comes from. And I often have felt that, uh, you know, he seems to sort of uh, appear as a Cold War figure. But what your argument is, no, he's, he's not a Cold War figure. He's just an extension of what evangelicals have been doing for at least the first half of the 20th century. Is that a, is that about right? That's exactly right. And that's, that's another key argument in the book. Is to, uh, traditionally, historians have seen that moment, World War II, as a real shift. That what right. happens in the 20s and 30s is very different from right. what happens in the 40s, 50s, and 60s with the rise of these younger evangelicals, Billy Graham, Carl Henry, Harold Offengay. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to show is that, in fact, there's very little that's changed um, other than the self-presentation. I mean, the, yeah. the folks in the post-World War II period are much more savvy right. about their public image. <laughs> They're much more careful. Right. Uh, and they're they're not drawing maps and pointing specifically to where the Antichrist is going to come. Right. And, but nevertheless, the apocalyptic theology is just as powerful. It's just as strong. It's just as pervasive. And in fact, the Cold War and the you know development of nuclear weapons makes it all the more pervasive. Exactly. Yeah. In fact, that's actually one thing I wanted to to talk to you about. Uh, I think we have this impression of the 20s and the 30s of fundamentalists being really odd, sort of on the margins, uh, sort of bizarre, and yet. What you show is that the language that we've often treated historically as being so marginal and, and, and in some ways so radical, almost fascist to a certain extent, is be- it becomes almost mainstream by the 50s and the 60s. Exactly. And I mean, it's, it's funny, you can even see it you know, even more recently in the environmental movements and you know, a variety of other right. movements where apocalyptic language has become the air Americans breathe. I mean, and, and for good reason. I mean, there, yeah. are, there are lots of real imminent threats to, um, to humankind. And so, so the fundamentalists who did seem exactly as you described, the marginal, bizarre, fringe in the 20s and 30s, um, they don't look as fringe. At least their apocalypticism doesn't seem right. as fringe since, which ex- helps explain why they've had such an impact on American culture and American society. Yeah, so, I mean, Matt, is it, is it when you talk about the 20s and 30s with people, and uh, it, listen, frankly, I don't think many people understand who we're talking about. So can you pick up on a few of the figures that you think are a few of the people that you feel are most important in that sort of interwar era uh, that we should know more about? Sure. Well, there's a handful. You know, Amy Semple McPherson, who I did my first book on, right. is the major female representative of this group. And because she's a female, she's sometimes included in the network, sometimes not. Right. Um, Charles Fuller, who goes on in World War II to tremendous radio fame, has this huge national radio program, was very important in the 30s. And we're still waiting for Phil Goff to write a, what's going to be an excellent biography on Charles Fuller. Right. Uh, Billy Sunday in the 20s and 30s, um, actually the 1910s as well, he preached on the second coming of Christ all the time. It was part of his regular series of sermons. He would preach in revivals. Uh, Harold Ockengay in the 1930s, who ends up becoming very important in the post-war period as the first president the Fourth Theological Seminary and one of the founders of Christianity Today, mm-hmm. the first president of the National Association of Evangelicals. He's preaching apocalypticism over and over again in the 1930s. Uh, Nelson Bell, whose daughter grows up to marry Billy Graham, he also becomes an important evangelical leader and a contributor to Christianity Today. He's writing a lot in the 1930s. And then there's a group of people, kind of an older generation in the 1930s. Frank Norris, the Texas Tornado, a very colorful, charismatic individual. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Roach Stratton, the New York pastor you know, at a pulpit in Manhattan where he denounced Broadway and, and all things New York, essentially. Yeah. Um, William Bell Riley, one of the founders of the, the World Christians Fundamentalist Association, um, who also was in some ways saw himself as the father figure to Billy Graham. Um, so there's just, there's just a bunch of these colorful fundamentalist folks who scholars are aware of, but yeah, the average person in general American public would not have heard of. Um, but nevertheless, together, we can see the ways in which they were interacting and the ways they were building and developing this network that then gives rise to, to Billy Graham, Jerry Falwell, Rick Warren, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it seems, it seems to me this is sort of the crucible of the book, uh, the, these chapters about the interwar period, uh, the, the sort of the fallout from World War One, where you have, the, you know, in some ways, the first major organizational crisis for uh, the radical evangelicals. Uh, um, but one of the things that you that you point out is that it seems it seems to me again you can correct me if I'm wrong that they've been considered the uneducated, colorful, yes, great personalities, but they had no actual ideas that were worth uh, 
worth preserving or worth thinking about as historians. And yet you're saying, no, it's just simply not the case. These ideas, this is where if you want to understand modern evangelicalism, you have to look at this interwar period. Right, exactly. The, the ideas were important, and the way they expressed and enacted those ideas were important. And I think that's. I think there's there's been a shift in historiography in the last ten or fifteen years, not to be quite as dismissive or condescending towards those folks. Um, and the idea that they're anti-intellectual right. doesn't gain much credit anymore. I mean, they did have important ideas, and you could you could if you wanted to do an intellectual history of them, you could really position their ideas in some serious intellectual thought that dates back for you know centuries. Um, but nevertheless, the stereotype, and this is back to the Scopes trial, the stereotype was that they were a bunch yeah. of rural, hillbilly, you know, bumpkins. Right. That just wasn't the case. That, that many of them had been trained at, you know, Yale Divinity School or Princeton right. Divinity School. Some right. of them had PhDs. Some of them had studied, you know, in the UK. Um, these were smart people, and it, well, and they varied. I mean, like every group, um, there, you know, as I was reading their works, there were some that clearly were not that smart. They weren't very reflective. They <laughs> okay. weren't very self-aware. Right. Um, but, but most of them were. Most of them knew what they were doing, and, and they were you know, thinking clearly, thinking rationally within a very particular framework. Well, who are they, who are they engaging with outside of, their, outside of their community? I mean, what other intellectuals or what other groups of ideas are they engaging with? Well, and that may, that may get to the problem, is that they weren't, a, they weren't engaging a lot with folks outside of their community because mm-hmm. they were so on the defensive because they were so looking for signs of the Antichrist and believed that American the American educational system had essentially been overtaken by secularism, by John Dewey's pragmatism, okay. and and by, you know, communist inclined or socialistly inclined ideas. And so mm-hmm. so there was not you know, from World War One to the end of World War Two, there was not a real engagement with the academy, and with some exceptions, right. they were reading. You know, in the 1940s, they were certainly reading right-wing thinkers, Ayn Rand and, and others. Um, um, they were beginning to become aware of, and so, but for the most part, they they were they had isolated themselves from the world of ideas, and that was probably that probably best explains the the sense that they're anti-intellectual. That they were working with each other, they were okay. working with more traditional theologies. They were not engaging with mainstream culture in that sense. Even though they're they're producing a copious amount of written work at this time, that is critiquing all the mainstream ideas. Right, and the critiques were not necessarily the most. You know, with some exceptions, the critiques were not necessarily the most well thought out or the deepest. Mm-hmm. Um, they were more geared towards uh, lay person audience, I mean, mm-hmm. they were critiquing ideas, but they weren't engaging in in depth. With it was even, I mean, just, just more basic theological ideas, the ways that they differed with with modernism. They weren't doing a systematic deconstruction of modernism. At okay. least most of them weren't, and and that does happen in the post World War II period. That they begin going to you know better graduate schools, and right. that, that's part of the remaking is to to deal more in the, the world of ideas. But yeah, the interwar period, they're so sure Jesus is coming back. They're so sure that the fascist threat in Europe is a sign that the Antichrist is in. <laughs> they're just not that concerned with yeah. with wrestling with ideas. Yeah, there's there's one thing um, I have this impression that fundamentalism works extremely well in when it's in the minority in a certain sense compared to the to the political mainstream that it's an effective way to um either rally people who feel disaffected or it's a very effective critique of whatever is is sort of dominant at that time um and i I see this particularly particularly in those chapters on uh, the new deal um is is there a sense that that these folks had trouble imagining that they would actually become part of the dominant uh, party of the United States. I mean, you have you know the chapter on, on uh, the relationship to the Republicans uh, at a time when Republicans were beginning to fade and, or you know kind of be uh, overwhelmed by the Democrats and, and Roosevelt's New Deal coalition. But is is there something to that that they felt most comfortable in a certain sense in the minority politically? I think so, and I've long been influenced by R. Lawrence Moore's Religious Outsiders and okay. the Making of Americans, which I think is just a brilliant book, yeah. and, and the, the further along I get in my career, the more I appreciate <laughs> That's uh, yeah. that argument. Yeah. Um, so yes, I, I don't think, you know, again, if, if we take them seriously, and I do, if they really believe they're moving towards the end times, then the, the pre- presumption is that they're going to become increasingly marginalized, increasingly disparaged, um, they're going to have less and less power. Yeah. 
And so that becomes a problem, not so much during the 1980s, because I think in a lot of ways they felt used by Ronald Reagan and they didn't get a whole lot of power <laughs> from, from Reagan. Yeah. But it really becomes a problem with George W. Bush when yeah. suddenly evangelicals are put into prominent positions in the courts, in the federal administration, um, and more and more of them are getting you know important roles in Congress. And so I don't think there's a coincidence that we see the apocalypticism beginning to fade in the 21st century, despite 9-11, despite some of the things that could revive it, right. because they, in fact, are investing far more into this world than in the next, and the apocalypticism that was so central to their identity from the late 19th century, really through the Cold War, is just not as central to them anymore. So I have this question um, that I, I come to it through my own stuff on Catholics and this sort of bizarre relationship they have of being wanting to be um, a foundational sort of group for for American society, while at the same time having sort of major problems with the state, with the United States itself as a political entity. What is this? What is the relationship that evangelicals have with the notion of America? Because you have a wonderful chapter on American exceptionalism. Um, can you explain what it is that they, how they feel about uh, America in this sort of ideal version? I mean, I'm thinking like some of the, the crazy stuff that Kirk Cameron produces uh, about American exceptionalism, you know, which I, I which I see sort of echoes of throughout the book. But at the right. same time, they are like rapidly anti-state in a way that, that Reagan tapped into in a, a bizarre way, becoming leader of the United States, but denouncing politics. Sure. You know, right. Well, yeah. And once again, I think it's it's an issue of change over time. But in yeah. the 1910s, in the interwar period, they're very critical of the American state, and yeah. very critical of the government. They say there's no such thing as a Christian nation. They denounce um, hyper-patriotism during World War One. They're critical of flag-waving. I mean, these are just not good American citizens. Right. Part of what gets them into <laughs> trouble with, with their religious opponents, the religious modernists, who are, in fact, very patriotic and supportive of the war effort. That shifts during World War Two, and I think, I think the shift happens because they just recognize the value to be gained or the advantages okay. to be gained in okay. supporting the war effort. And they also believe, you know, that the U.S., should win. I mean, they just, the, the war itself appeals to their, I don't want to say there's an inherent human nature, but they just believe that Hitler is evil, that Japan is evil, and that the U.S. should prevail, so we're right. not going to be rooting against the U.S. to lose. And so what that does, though, is then forces them to reevaluate the theology, and so they begin to think about ways to integrate, and I don't, again, this is not necessarily explicit, but you can see the right. shift happening reading their sources. What they do is they begin to think about the role of their nation, and they begin to focus on a new part of the theology that had always been there, but they had never placed much attention to, or much attention on, which was Jesus' claim that when he returns, he's not going to just judge individuals, but he's going to judge nations. Hmm. And so from that, that then gives them a rationale for saying, well, if Jesus is going to judge nations, there are going to be righteous nations and unrighteous nations. So therefore, we want to do what we can to make America a righteous nation. And then that gives them the incentive then to blend sort of a patriotic fervor, a support for the U.S. as a country with their apocalyptic theology. So we can still believe we're moving towards the end times, we can still believe the apocalypse is imminent, but we can believe at the same time that America can be exceptional, can be godly, can help bring as many people to salvation before that judgment um, as possible. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating. <laughs> it's absolutely because in some ways it, it seems like World War Two. And the more that uh, I've looked, I don't know, at at twentieth century um, American history, it is it is such a uh, a, a change, an, an event that changes so much for so many groups. Uh, they have to change the way that they relate to each other, the way they relate to mainstream society. Uh, even their, you know, the language that they use has to change. And uh, I think you did. You do a very nice job in the book of, of trying to lay out all the different streams that are moving towards World War II and then how how it's so different coming out of the war, how we get these figures that we are comfortable with in the post-war period uh, in evangelicals, um, but that they are very much the same as, as the characters who we don't feel all that comfortable with in the pre-World War II period. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. World War II was so important in so many ways, and um, I think I spent two chapters on, on that yeah. for that very reason. Yeah. And, um, and so the the issue is that 
that it sets this up. And the other thing that it does is this creation of this new Christian nationalism that emerges from World right. War II right. helps create a sense of U.S. the need for U.S. intervention abroad to spread, yeah. you know, quote unquote, spread democracy, spread freedom, and therefore spread Christianity. Yeah. And so it helps. It, it really creates this perfect storm in yeah. which evangelicals can then align with neoconservatives in foreign <laughs> policy in ways that I don't think either group anticipated, but by the 1970s and 1980s, suddenly they recognize that they have a lot in common. And so evangelicals become very, very um, staunch supporters of Amer- American intervention for spreading democracy, for yeah. spreading religious freedom. But at the same time, they continue to be unilateralists. They don't want to see the U.S. submitting any of its sovereignty or losing any of its sovereignty to the United Nations or to any powerful international coalitions. Yeah. So, um, so the effects of this stuff are everywhere. Yeah. Matt, I, you know, I imagine after finishing this book, you were somewhat exhausted, but uh, knowing you, you have some project I'm sure you're working on right now. Can you talk a little bit about what is coming? Sure. I'm just I'm just in the very early stages of expanding beyond evangelicalism, finally, which I'm very excited to be finally <laughs> be moving on. Okay. Um, but I'm going to do a book that looks at religion in World War II and particularly looks at missionaries and religious activists who are involved in intelligence, espionage, and covert operations. Yeah, it's excellent. So, it's excellent. Hopefully, uh, be a big, hopefully, big, sexy, intriguing story. Yeah. That still has religion as its is core, but yeah. but like you said, everything changes in World War II. So I'm gonna I'm gonna take apart World War II piece by piece through the world of these missionaries and activists. That's great. Well, Matthew Sutton, thank you so much for talking with us on the New Books Network. And uh, it's really a pleasure to have read this book. And uh, I imagine it's going to get, uh, it's going to to generate a lot of discussion over the next few years about uh, where we're going to go with our research on evangelicals in, in American history. So thank you very much again. Thank you, Ray. It's been a lot of fun. My name is Raymond Tversky, and you've been listening to a new interview with Matthew Avery Sutton about his book, American Apocalypse, A History of Modern Evangelicalism for New Books in Intellectual History.